I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Dakshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Many of us trained in technical and professional domains and having mastered our day jobs are often left yearning for intellectual stimulation that goes beyond our career tracks. Studying the liberal arts for one fosters a certain type of thinking and outlook, enabling one to explore new interests in life. Recognizing that opportunities to learn subjects in the liberal arts are not accessible for those of us trained in traditional disciplines, Takshashila Institution is happy to announce a 12V graduate certificate in the liberal arts GCLA program. Starting this February, GCLA offers the opportunity of a lifetime to acquire practical knowledge and skills derived from the liberal arts. Learn how to appreciate a work of art, understand the nuances of Indian psychology, explore facets of political philosophy, perfect the skills to become a wine connoisseur, and learn to understand and interpret India's finest temple architecture. This program is first of its kind, and it will round up an influential section of people who yearn for intellectual stimulation and cultural refinement. This course will be conducted in person in Bengaluru by internationally renowned faculty, and there are only twenty spots open. Check the show notes for more information. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. For the first time in 40 years, the Russian military has given the public an unprecedented look into the design of its nuclear-armed missiles. This sneak peek into the design of the SS-18 not only tells us about the technology behind Soviet-era missiles, but also helps us contrast Soviet and American missile designs. I'm Shri Krishna Upadhyaya, your host, and I'm joined by our in-house missiles expert Pranav Satyanath to talk about some fascinating aspects of Soviet designs. And their history. Welcome to ATP Pranav. Thank you, Shri. It's always great to talk about missiles. <laughs> I'm sure. So, why don't you start by telling us what exactly is this revelation? The revelation is simply a television footage of this missile, which is actually 40 years old. Right? People who have seen the missiles are mostly American and probably so Russian officials, obviously, and American officials. The public, by large, has not seen this missile, right? You have pictures of missiles being tested. This forty-year-old missile, which in Russia it's called the R thirty-six M two, a quite a confusing nomenclature with a very confusing history. For the first time, when we are seeing this missile's design, we are able to contrast the design from the newer missiles and the American missiles. It's not a big deal in itself, but it tells us something that we have suspected for a very long time. and that's what i find very interesting about it and uh, i think it's it gives us a reason to talk about technology progression in two different countries right so what are these suspicions that have come true or in the sense uh, why do you think this revelation of the new footage is significant and why should uh, we as the members of public be interested in it so it's actually quite significant because in bilateral arms control agreements between the soviet union and russia and the us There were always claims that the R thirty six M two missile could house fourteen nuclear warheads, right? So, by what that means is that you have the final stage of a missile, which is called a bus, carries fourteen independent warheads, fourteen independent nuclear bombs, if you might say, and fourteen is a quite large number. So, everyone was skeptical whether the missile could genuinely carry fourteen warheads. And if so, how could it carry fourteen warheads? What was the design? Because 
as we will talk about it later, the Americans had a 10 warhead bus with quite a large yield, about uh, f- about 300 kilotons. And we wanted to know what is a Soviet yield, what, how are the Soviet packaging it, how is it different from the Americans. And we've got to explore that a lot more. And uh, it allows us to think about in the future Soviet designs, especially the new missile, which is called the RS-18, which is called RS-28, which was tested in April. The full-scale test of the new missile was done in April, and it created a quite a bit of stir in the West, even though it was testing in normal schedule. Right. So since you spoke that Americans have had a different approach to uh, missile building so far, so how would you contrast, say, the two systems of missile design, the American one and the Soviet one? So the Americans and the Soviets fundamentally have uh, different kinds of approaches to building missiles. The Russians or the Soviets went by designing heavy missiles, missiles that could carry either an extremely large nuclear warhead, which would go in the megatons, or they designed a missile that could carry several smaller warheads. And these were all liquid fuel, which means that they use storable propellants, not cryogenic propellants, cryogenic meaning cold storage propellants, but they use hypergolic propellants, which can be stored in normal temperatures. The Americans, on the other hand, could not rely on liquid fuels because they would take very long time to fill. So the Americans went with a solid fuel design and they had to innovate a lot more. They had to package it in a better way. They had to come up with better compounding and better casting so that these missiles were lighter. And they made heavy missiles, the so-called heavy missiles, far smaller, and they decided to fit in 10 warheads. So in the American case, there was something called MX slash Peacekeeper Missiles. The MX stands for Missile Experimental. The program started in the 1970s because the Americans wanted to match the Soviet Union in the R-36M design and the R-36M2 later. And the MX is a very interesting story itself because it got cancelled just a few years after it got deployed. By 2002, they had either repurposed the missile for launching satellites or they had decommissioned them entirely. And the Americans' missile was substantially smaller than the Soviet version, which was liquid-fueled. And the Americans had a simpler approach to packaging warheads. If you go to the pictures, if you go type on Google and say MX missile bus, you will find a smaller ring on which you have 10 missiles, uh, which is a very simple design. In contrast to the Russian missile, which has a two-level system of hosting warheads, that is two In the same bus, you have one underneath, which houses seven warheads, and then at the top level, which has seven more warheads. So when the missile is launched, these seven warheads would be dispersed first, and later you would have the next seven warheads, which we dispersed into into independently. What it tells us is that the Soviets gave a lot more thought into packaging. It also tells us something about materials, because if you look at the overall design of the bus, it is much, much heavier. And it depends on greater sets of complexities, which tells you that the Soviets were also not advanced enough in making things, making the designs smaller and more compact. Whereas the Americans had pioneered this technology quite a long time ago. And the importance of this is that the legacy still continues. The Russians still depend on a heavy missile, which is liquid fueled. Even though they have come so many years into advancement, they still want to rely on liquid fuel and they still want to rely on technologies that were pioneered so long ago because they're just used to it culturally. 
and epistemologically the engineers are attuned to building such tech so it would contrast us because uh, the americans are building their own icbms a new set of icbms they're testing them it's called a sentinel and the russians as i said they have a new missile so both countries are testing a new set of missiles and both of them rely on old technologies that have been tried and tested in their own ways right so before we continue i just wanted to sort of take a step back and try and understand from you about soviet missiles themselves right so what is the origin of their missile development program what were the different milestones they crossed along the way maybe that will help us contextualize the current revelations even better yeah that is one of the more interesting aspects of the history of soviet technology development and you know we think of soviet union as highly centralized country with highly centralized industries but if you look at the way that missile program and rocket program in general developed it's quite different from the americans the americans in fact had a very centralized way of developing military technology and space technology the soviets had something that's more closer to market competition and that's what i find extremely interesting in all of this so after world war 2 both the americans and the soviets got hold of german rocket technology the v2 rocket was the prized possession of the nazi germans the americans got the designer of the v2 rocket dr wernher von braun and the soviets got the rest of the things the factories the uh, the machines uh, for building these rockets and so on the americans got all the brain power because they had about 200 germans who were working on the american side for building their rockets and missiles and the soviets had three very interesting sets of people and for our listeners these names are quite important as i narrate this story the first name is sergey koryalov sergey koryalov was a rocket scientist in the soviet union who had his own design bureau that is in charge of building missiles and designing missiles called okb1 then you had vladimir chelome chelome was another character himself who had a design bureau and finally you had another individual who was also a rocket designer named mikhail yangel who was also a competitor now all of the three figures koryalov chelome and yangel were extremely powerful within the soviet military circles within the design circles and they had their own political leanings and political connections with the communist party including the chairman of the communist party be it stalin or khrushchev or later brezhnev and all three of them pulled their influence so that they could build better rockets better missiles right so in the early days sergey korilov's bureau gets holds of the nazi missiles and they substantially improve on these missiles it goes from the v2 rocket which is called a r1 and substantially improvement later in 1956 you get something called the r7 the r7 was an intercontinental ballistic missile which means it could reach the mainland of the us the r7 was a liquid fuel missile which means it had to use oxygen and kerosene it was very unreliable for those days it is still unreliable even in the modern day and it was converted to carry yuri gagarin the first astronaut right this was a soviet way to show that you know we can use icbms to launch astronauts too it's not very difficult so here is where the intermingling of missile and rocket technology comes when we think about space technologies space technology is not something civilian or peaceful it has its inherent origins from destructive missiles missiles that were built to kill hundreds and thousands of people which were repurposed for peaceful civilian technologies 
And the R7 missile was a family of rockets that is still in use today. It's called the Soyuz series of rockets. And the Soyuz series of rockets have similar designs and they are still used to launch satellites and astronauts to space. Now, the other two members, Chalome and Yangon, weren't really happy with the progress that Sergei Koryalov was making. So Chalome, in short, he proposed that they build a universal series of rockets, rockets that could be easily retrofitted with boosters, that could be easily manufactured and used across purposes, whether for launching nuclear warheads or whether for launching astronauts or sending payloads. Uh, this was called a universal rocket, UR. The UR-100 series of missiles came to being in the 1970s. And by the 1980s, you had a UR-500. The UR-500 was never purposed to uh, launch satellites, astronauts. So instead, it was never used to launch warheads. And instead, now it's called, now we know it as the Proton and Proton-M series of civilian rockets. So you can see that already you have design bureaus who were intensely competitive with each other building their own missiles and converting them to rockets and so on. So, and finally, you had Yangle. Yangle was had as a design bureau in present-day Ukraine, right? So he was a designer who wanted to build uh, solid fuel missiles and uh, he wanted to build liquid fuel missiles, hypergolic, stowable propellants. And uh, this led him to build the R-36. The R-36 is the earliest version of the uh, missile that we spoke about earlier in this podcast, which is the R-36M2. And this finally became the most important missile in the Russian arsenal. And this is the story of it. And the Russians were also, the Soviets were also really good at developing uh, liquid fuel engines. A bureau led by an individual named Kuznetsov, who was originally there to manufacture aircraft engines, suddenly was contacted by Sergei Korolev to build rocket engines. And what they did was use turbopumps. Turbopumps are these uh, pumps that are used to inject fuel better into the combustion chamber of rocket engines. And so we started building a full fuel flow cycle uh, rocket engines, which were extremely efficient. So efficient that the Americans uh, began using these engines in their own rockets called the RD-180s. And that's that's the legacy of it, which is the reason why we have storable propellants. We have liquid fuel engines in contrast with what the Americans did. The Americans had a very centralized system of planning which meant that they had a, uh, especially in the Air Force, they had the Ballistic Missiles Systems Division, which was a bureau within the Air Force, which would contract for designs. And the missiles would be built by different companies. Although there was no strict competition, these contracts would be given out to a variety of American companies who would build parts of these missiles and they would be assembled together. So very, very different set of systems. And they gave a very different set of results. That's fascinating, Pranam, especially the bit about Yuri Gagarin blasting off to the space on a repurposed ICBM. Just mind-blowing. Thanks. Let's take a short break now and then we'll come back with uh, more questions for Pranam on Namasites. Welcome back to All Things Policy. We are in conversation with Pranav on uh, Missiles. So I wanted to ask you that, you know, when we spoke of the American and the Soviet missile programs, I have a very like simple question that, you know, why were there so many missiles flying around? Why were there so many rockets being developed in that era? Is it something just to do with the Cold War or is there more to the story? This is more to do with the Cold War itself. Because the Americans, because the Americans were the first to build 
nuclear weapons. The Soviets wanted to catch up and they wanted better means of delivery. The Americans had a large set of long-range bomber aircraft that could go within the Soviet territory. But these bomber aircraft were quite vulnerable, which means that Soviets could potentially destroy them when they entered their territory using anti-aircraft guns and anti-aircraft artillery. Now, the Soviets had, of course, they had a set of ICBMs that they developed, they pioneered far earlier than the Americans. The Americans tried tried to develop ICBMs like the Titan and the Atlas. And in the very early days, the Atlas ICBM had series of failures, which sort of prompted the Americans to try even harder to build better missiles. And so in the late 1950s, there was something called the Soviet Missile Scare. The Missile Scare was this rumor during the campaign of John F. Kennedy, where John F. Kennedy thought that his predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower, had allowed the Soviets to build hundreds of missiles without taking any action on the American side. And he said, we will make sure that this missile gap does not exist. And when Kennedy came into power, he realized that this missile scare was not actually real. In fact, the Soviets had only eight ICBMs that were deployed. They did not have the industrial size to ramp up production. So the Americans got a little more confident and they developed a Minuteman 1 series of land-based ICBMs in the early days, which was completely solid fuel. It was small, it was reliable, and the Soviets were prompted to catch up. There's a very nice book called as The Big Five about the Soviet arms control decision-making and nuclear, nuclear decision-making. And the authors of this book basically say that the only purpose of the Soviet missile industry was to catch up with whatever the Americans were doing. So replicate it, if not replicate similar technologies, replicate the kind of missiles they wanted to build one-to-one. And that stipulated the cycle of an arms race as we know it today. The reason why the Soviets have so many missiles is mostly because what we said, there was this competition between three very big names in the missile and rocket industry, Shalome, Koryolov, and Yangel, were extremely egoistical men who wanted to have bigger rockets, who wanted to have control over the missile industry. And these deadlocks, these political deadlocks, often meant that the decision makers in the Kremlin or a small sector in the Kremlin who were taking decisions on missile development had to had no choice but to authorize the development of two missiles in tandem, which is the reason why we have the UR-100 series of rockets and we have the R-36, right? Why do you need two ICBMs? Because the Soviets thought that, hey, we have to reduce this infighting. We don't want to sort of alienate any single person because they carry with them, you know, knowledge. So let's make sure that both of them build missiles. It's good for the Soviet arsenal. It's, the Americans can't catch up with it. And this is the reason why we have wide variety of missiles. It's, it's a combination of the international competition. And it's also a factor of bureaucratic infighting. And both of these factors empirically, theoretically, give rise to a lot of missiles. And empirically, that's validated also. Right. And uh, this actually brings me to the modern day. That's my final question to you. It's that, you know, where do these missile programs of the Russians and the Americans stand today? And is it as bad as the Cold War? Has it improved? And uh, what's your outlook on this? It's a very bad timing to talk about Russian and American relations because, you know, we are recording this podcast here Tuesday and yesterday, which is on the 29th of November. 
last night there was a news that the Russians would not participate in uh, the bilateral consultative committee meetings with the Americans. The bilateral consultative committee or BCC is a working level mechanism in the bilateral arms control arrangement where both sides come together and discuss issues that they have with verification of their arms control agreements or issues with on-site inspections any clarification they want, exchange of information, requesting of information that is permitted within the treaty. And this happens usually once every year, twice a year, right? Now, because of COVID-19, on-site inspections had to be suspended because there was problems with ensuring safety of on-site inspectors and so on. And after the invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, they had to cancel on-site inspections altogether. The Americans, the Russians were not ready to cooperate because they felt that the on-site inspectors would be harassed because of sanctions. Sanctions mean that visas, getting even diplomatic visas is quite difficult. And it created a condition where on-site inspections, which was very, very important for the Americans and Soviet, American and Russian arms control, it does not exist anymore. The only way to verify it using spy satellites, right? So that's a problem because you could theoretically violate agreements and so on. Even though there is no evidence that either the Russians or the Americans have violated any part of the treaty. No, but what it tells us is the direction in which the American and Russian relations are going. The New START Treaty, which was arms control agreement signed in 2012, is coming to an end in 2026. It was extended by the Biden administration and Putin in 2021 to 2026. And if we see the same level of deterioration in our relations, they will not have follow-on agreement. What comes after once this arms control treaty expires in 2026, we don't know. If there is no agreement, then both sides have free reign in developing, expanding the nuclear arsenal. And for the Americans, it would mean that developing one-to-one replacement of the Sentinel of the Minuteman 3 ICBM, which is currently in deployment, and they're developing new missiles, which is the Sentinel missile, which is supposed to replace the Minuteman. And they could substantially increase the number of missiles also. And for the Russians, there are more incentives. They have a new range of modernized equipment, which will begin deployment this year. And the Russians could generally increase the number of warheads they have in their deployment. They could deploy more missiles. They could, in theory, expand it beyond a limit of 1,550 warheads across land ICBMs, aircraft, and submarines. It's a worry in the near term and the long term, unless, you know, the war itself becomes an opportunity where for the Russians, it's far too expensive to build these missiles and arms control is the only way for them to reduce the costs. Uh, There is hope. Because generally, after the so after wars, the Soviet Union would generally agree to limit its equipment. For example, after they badly lost the Afghan war by 1987, it was clear that there was no way out of Afghanistan for Soviets without a victory. And the Gorbachev administration back then agreed to substantially cut down the number of equipment it had. And there is an opportunity here, but while just sitting here and thinking about American and Russian relations, it doesn't look very optimistic. Sure. Thank you, Pranav, for joining me on this episode of ATP and for having this insightful conversation about missiles. I, for one, definitely learned a lot. So thanks once again. Yeah, thank you, Shri. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media 
The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.